0: Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast. My name is Mandy Rhodes, I'm the editor of Hollywood Magazine, and joining me to discuss the week in politics is my award-winning writer, Liam Kirkoddy.
1: Join myself and Mandy, and the odd politician of course, as we chew the political fat and spit it out on the pages of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood Magazine. Well, no, I mean, I think there probably are people that feel like this is quite a good get out, that they've been getting away with it for nine months of managing to avoid seeing people that they didn't otherwise want to see. I'm not saying that applies to your mum. I'm sure she does want to see you.
0: And I also noted that John uh, Lamont, that he used to be an MSP and now a Tory MP, he then said that um, the threat to devolution wasn't the prime minister, but the SNP, because independence would finish devolution.
2: The newest leader, of course, we've got is Douglas, is Douglas Ross, or sort of leader in waiting. Or, you know, actually, he's, he's made some quite interesting announcements on education and health and so forth in the last couple of months. It hasn't made a scrap of a difference. I mean, the opposition parties must have to kind of must pull their hair out, you know, to sort of understand why they can't really get the debate on where where they want it to be but
1: no i once i did shifts once for a unnamed newspaper where i was told to go around in edinburgh having to check whether various official big clocks were on time or not so i had to go and check every major clock in edinburgh the problem was i actually confused at one point i thought it was a clock it turned out to be a big compass Okay, so first up this week, we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show in which we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I have uh, a very obvious Good Week this week. Which is following the news. And you can tell it's important because it follows the news that Moderna, yes, Moderna, uh, a pharmaceutical company, has developed another vaccine following the Pfizer one, which shows a 95% effectiveness rate.
0: Yeah, it's good. This is becoming a regular feature now because I think we said last week um, the news of a vaccine was the good week, but it's tremendous.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's quite heartening.
0: Yeah. And I think that was always predicted that once you got one pharmaceutical company saying that they had a vaccine, working you would you would get a number of them coming forward saying that they were getting it to work too because they're all obviously working on the same science um so we've bulk ordered so that's good we've bulk ordered the less efficient one
1: yeah I mean it is in fairness it's 90 versus 95 percent I'm actually I'm okay with that I don't know what the lowest I don't know the lowest level I'd go for would be but I think I'd take what I was offered really
0: yeah I mean interesting because I think the um the drugs authority have said that they will now approve vaccines that are safe obviously but with a 50 percent efficacy rate Mm. so yeah I guess you you'd just be pleased that it was working and that it was safe um yeah and I think the one that has been announced this week with a 95 percent efficacy rate that's the one that doesn't need to be stored at minus 70 degrees
1: yeah not quite as cold anyway no. um it's good we've is... got
0: all the fridges though
1: well yeah Nicholas sturgeon did say scotland has lots of big fridges
0: big fridge
1: i've really a tiny fridge
0: at home
1: do you so how many you can store a lot of vaccine in there if you're stockpiling
0: well it's more the ice box <laughs> i've got a very sm- <laughs> i've got a very small ice box it fits yeah, fits would do the wine, basically. You don't
1: want to have to choose between your wine and a life-saving vaccine, do you?
0: No, I just have one in each hand, I think. My vaccine and my <laughs> drugs. <laughs> it's like a party, isn't it? Party. Well, yeah,
1: there will be a party pretty soon, I would imagine. If the vaccine does get rolled out, you'll be able to stir up that wine.
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to say that I, I think it's fabulous news, obviously. And I think definitely, uh, I was saying last week, that I could feel a growing sense of optimism about what the future holds. And, and not to detract from our good week. But I do feel that the the, the rush to make us all um, able to enjoy Christmas as families and extended families, I just think it's all a bit too premature. I think we need to hold back a bit on that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I suppose it depends how they decide to work it. But if they try and have some sort of break over Christmas, you can see that leading to a huge spike. I guess that's what people want, but...
0: Yeah, but I mean, for the sake of spending one day, you know, I I mean, I guess as a family, we've already decided that we certainly can't have Christmas like we would normally have. um, Uh Because myself, my two sisters, and then all of their kids and their partners, it starts to make a bit of a crowd. And I think for my mum in particular, who's 83 and quite vulnerable, she just absolutely does not want to be part of that. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, could be that she doesn't want to be part of it anyway. <laughs> well, no,
1: I mean, I think there probably are people that feel like this is quite a good get out. It, that they've been getting yeah. away with it for nine months of so they to avoid seeing people that they didn't want to want to see. I'm not saying that this applies to your mum. I'm sure she does want but, to see you. I think but... it
0: applies to my husband. <laughs> I think he's quite pleased about it. But I think Has he, he
1: been can... self-isolating, Mandy? That's what... <laughs> <Well, it's> just <laughs> his
0: life, isn't it? I think um, we, we're, you know, we, we've decided already that as a family, it'll just be myself uh doug and our son but he mm. you know he's the son is still to come back from london and um, yeah. i think they're still waiting to find out what universities will suggest about uh, vaccinations etc
1: yeah and testing i suppose
0: sorry not vaccinations yeah testing um, yeah. and then quarantine so we'll see see what happens but Anyway.
1: Well, I mean, the other thing in the background of all this is that there are going to be quite a few people who get into the whole kind of anti-vaccine conspiracy stuff and yeah. refuse to take it. So actually, you know, I can see probably certainly parts of the kind of the weirder bits of the Internet and possibly parts of the kind of alt-right, as they're sometimes called, trying to profit from this you know trying to gain political capital
0: yeah i mean i do know i think it's fair enough that some people may have misgivings um Mm. about it all because obviously this has been a vaccine that's been rushed through basically because of the need of it but we haven't ever really come up with a vaccine that completely cures um this kind of virus and I just know that's true yeah so I it think would've... it's unfair to say that all people that might have misgivings might be mad anti-vaxxers
1: no but I think if I think if you're wanting to uh, push a conspiracy this would be a good one to get started you know well, yeah. if you were looking at it cynically
0: absolutely but um you know I think we just I think it will be about communication and I guess mm-hmm. again that comes down to the political leaders and certainly regardless of the outcomes of the pandemic you know nicholas sturgeon has definitely been a better communicator than boris johnson which mm-hmm. might lead us <laughs> into our bad week
1: that's right yes it's a fairly obvious bad week this week too actually um, a bad week for Douglas Ross I would say yeah. um, after Boris Johnson described devolution as a disaster and apparently as Tony Blair's biggest mistake during a call with Tory MPs yeah. at least according to reports in the sun i mean downing street hasn't um hasn't denied he said that so i mean it's, it looks pretty solid
0: well they, ha- they haven't denied it and then they've continued to impact on it really by almost Going into reverse and saying how wonderful devolution is i mean you th- do you think the Prime Minister actually understood that a zoom call might be something that people share and that <laughs> conversations might be shared
1: i mean it's it's increasingly hard to understand what they think they're they're doing with this yeah. um You know, yeah, so he appears to have said devolution was a disaster. And then um, within a few hours, you've got spokespeople, various kind of allies coming out saying he's always supported devolution, which is one of these sentences that's probably easier to justify if you just ignore everything he's basically ever said or done.
0: Yeah, so he supports devolution, but he doesn't like the SNP. So it's, it's more about he was attacking, he says, a party. But actually, that mm-hmm. kind of misses the point altogether as well about devolution, because devolution isn't about one political party, it's about a system of governing a country. Um, well, which yes. You'd hope the Prime Minister might know something about.
1: And Douglas Ross did, in fairness to him, move quite quickly to try and distance himself from the from the topic, saying it hasn't been a disaster. It's the this is a quote from him: the SNP's non-stop obsession with another referendum above jobs, schools, and everything else has been a disaster, which is, I think, quite a different take to Boris Johnson's.
0: Yeah, and I also noted that John uh, Lamont, that you, he used to be an MSP and now a Tory MP, he then said that um, the threat to devolution wasn't the Prime Minister but the SNP because independence would finish devolution, and I just. <laughs> that was a statement of the obvious that probably would be applauded by SNP supporters
1: well yeah maybe no one likes devolution
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting because i think at the end of the day douglas ross can keep saying the opposite of whatever the prime minister says and obviously he made a stand you know way back around dominic cummings which i think will we'll, we'll probably talk about him shortly but hmm. you can't continue to be at odds with the leader of your party and actually for this podcast we've interviewed Mark Diffley from the Diffley partnership um, Mark's the pollmeister, meister I would say a poll um, uh, and we're discussing the state of the parties in the run-up to the election but also talking about an independence referendum and he is basically saying that it, there's nothing that Douglas Ross can do to improve the party situation in Scotland when you're tethered to the UK party and you've got Boris as the Prime Minister. It's an impossible situation for him.
1: Well, it is. There's, there is very little he can do. Boris Johnson's come out saying this shortly before the Conservative conference as well.
0: <laughs> do you think he you actually know? knew that there is um, the Scottish conference?
1: I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Um I think that at times the only way you can understand what they're up to is that he's actually trying to end the union, but doesn't want to be seen to be doing it. You know, it's yeah. like it's like someone planning an insurance fire or something. You I mean, know, like he's, he's he's going around talking about how much he loves the thing, but then if it burns down, he can have deniability.
0: Yeah. I mean, he's basically writing um, a winning ticket for the SNP probably in May. That, yeah, I mean, I mean, again,
1: he may not be totally on top of that, though. You know,
0: <laughs> does he know if there's going to be one? Um, uh, well, I suppose there's anyone. <laughs> so I've interviewed Mark Diffley, um from the Diffley Partnership. He's basically Scotland's pollmeister, uh, and he, he's talked to me about the state of the parties and basically the fact that Douglas Ross can can do nothing to improve the party situation in Scotland when you're tethered to the UK party where Boris is the leader and he's saying things that makes life very difficult for Douglas Ross in Scotland. Quite an impossible situation. So we'll listen to that now. So, Mark, you know, I'm looking at politics just now and we're looking at a US president locking himself in, a prime minister locking himself down. It's almost like (laughs) we've forgotten that we're unlocking ourselves or have unlocked ourselves from Europe. I mean, there's so much going on. Can you remember a quiet time? Uh,
2: uh, Well, uh, no. (laughs) No is the answer. (laughs) I guess from about 2012... Uh, 2012 onwards, I always think the sort of the, the 2011. Sorry, I always think the sort of day after the the SNP landslide in 2011, where it it sort of became, I suppose, quite obvious at that point that we would that we would be sort of walking towards an independence referendum. Is probably kind of you know the day sort of everything <laughs> everything changed at least in at, at least in our in, in our world locally. Yeah. And it's sort of mushroomed I suppose from there through as you say, through kind of brexit through trump through uh how many general elections have we had in the last yeah. few years you know and, Too many. um and it looks like we're about I mean, locally at least about to hit hit you know going into the next electoral cycle next year and, and probably another referendum after that so no, I can't remember uh, a quiet time, and I really don't think we're about. To, I really don't think we're about to enter a quiet time either.
0: Uh, when you look at twenty twenty one, I mean, we can talk about the football at a later stage, Ooh. but I mean, twenty twenty one, a Scottish Parliament election with the prospect of a potentially a majority again for the SNP, an independence referendum, the Euros. I mean, are you in nirvana?
2: Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's pretty good for pollsters, if you you know, um, for people in my for people in my trade, I guess. Yeah, I mean. It 2020, May 2021 seems to be the next, uh, uh the, the, the next big sort of uh staging post for another referendum. I mean, mo- I guess most, if not all, of your listeners will know that, um, you know, the latest polling shows the SNP kind of streets ahead, really. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm often, um, I often think back, however, to. Uh, 2010, where at this point in the cycle before 2011, of course, with about six months ago before the election, La- Labour had a pretty substantial lead in the polls, and uh, look how that turned out. Um, so things do change. I mean, the context and that feels massively different this time around, of course. Um, and it's difficult to see um, how the SNP won't win the election fairly handsomely. But I think 2010 is a reminder um that uh you know you sort of take your eye off the ball at at, at your peril really and, and the public mood can change. And I do think actually there are there are perhaps two or three things on the horizon that could um that could yet throw a throw a sort of spanner in the works as far as the SNP is concerned. But you know sort of taking a step back and looking at the numbers, you would have to say that there would need to be something fairly Dramatic happen to stop them winning the election. Um, of course, the the big question is whether they'll get a majority or a majority with the Greens for for, for another for another referendum, which would give them a, a fairly clear mandate, which the uh, UK government would, I think, find increasingly difficult to uh, to resist.
0: I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, when you talk about two thousand and ten? I mean, I can remember interviewing ian grey who was the then leader of the scottish labour party (laughs) we've had quite a few since um (laughs) but his in fact his his daughter changed her wedding date as far as i remember because the assumption was that he (laughs) would be the first first minister of scotland and um, the chain you know it would clash with her wedding so you're right i
2: didn't know that and then he got stuck in the subway shop. Do you remember in
0: uh,
2: oh, Glasgow Central?
0: Shall we talk about um, our favourite Ian Gray moments?
2: <laughs> well, I, I think that's still my that's still my favourite. Um, yeah,
0: that was a pretty awful. Actually, that was almost a defining moment, wasn't it? He ran away from. Um... Yeah. Sean Clerken. Sh- Sean Clerken, yeah,
2: yeah, that's right. Um, we, we, we've all run away from Sean Clerken. Well, I was about either? to say
0: that. I tend to put the phone down more on him. Yeah, I've,
2: I've certainly run away from him a couple of times. Um, <clears throat> but, um,
0: but yeah, so, I mean... You know, I- when you look back to that, Matt, because although we all joke about wanting to run away from people like Sean Clerken... Alex Salmond was then the leader of of the SNP. Annabel Goldie was the leader of the Tories. They actually engaged with him. And I think that was the issue. When you saw that image of Ian Gray running away from him and hiding in a sandwich shop, it was such a bad look.
2: It really was. I mean, I think, as you said, that kind of crystallized a lot of what I think went wrong with Labour's campaign. I, I think we sort of sometimes overlook, and, okay, and of course it is. God, it's ten years ago now, but um, God, uh, of course Gordon, Gordon wasn't the prime minister anymore he wasn't the leader anymore and I think actually his, he was a pretty popular figure, Gordon Brown back then in Scotland, and certainly, of course, in the 2010 general election he had uh, although they lost the, they lost the election, they'd done pretty well in Scotland. people forget that I think um, and I think largely because of him. Um and so the fact that he had gone by then, you know, the financial crisis was in kind of full flow at that point. and then Scottish labour running, a, as we've alluded to a, a fairly poor campaign, um, was really what was really what sort of tripped them up from what looked like a fairly unassailable uh, position six months out. So I'm <clears throat> not sure the same will happen again to the SNP and their lead is certainly much stronger now, you know, sort of 20 or 30 points ahead in some of the polls. So they something really catastrophic would have to happen uh, this time, which I'm not sure will.
0: Well, we can come back to picking over perhaps what could be (laughs) catastrophic. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, the other I think it probably when you say it was ten years ago to that mm-hmm. uh, two thousand ten uh, two thousand eleven election, but two thousand ten campaign, just seems extraordinary because we've gone through so much, and mm-hmm. I I would probably say still at that election, Labour were still of the view that the two thousand and seven um, win for the SNP and then allow you know forming a minority government was still something that was just a mistake. Yeah,
2: you know, I, I think Labour was yeah. still of that view. <clears throat> oh, I think that's, uh, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Um, they were also of the view <clears throat> a bit later that were they on the right side of the uh, independence referendum debate and the right side of the result, then that would be what kind of rehabilitated them. And, and of course that's been, <clears throat> that's been false as well, despite being on the right side. Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, there are several points in the last uh, 10, 15 years where, um yeah, the judgment of that party has been, has been a bit awry, I have to say.
0: I mean, the SNP went into that 2011 election on the Team Record Vision yeah. the slogan, basically having yeah. built up um, what they believed was competent government during 2007, including changing the name of the executive to government. Yeah. Do you think Team Record Vision would be something that um, Nicola Sturgeon could use going into this election?
2: Yeah, I do. Um, I, I absolutely think that, and, and I, I, I think, although obviously attitudes to the kind of constitutional settlement have changed and have changed quite a lot recently, I, I I still think that kind of, you know, we're the party that acts for Scotland, we're the party that will stand up to Westminster or whatever, still chimes kind of quite well, um, probably as well now as it, as it ever has done, given the given the complexion of the government down south and you know, people's attitudes to it during COVID, if not as much as anything else. So I absolutely think that, yeah, I think that that will be a very strong card for her to play next year.
0: I mean, having been in government now for 13 years, clearly you end up almost um, having to defend your own record. You're comparing yourself with yourself, if you like. Um, I mean, clearly the the only way the opposition parties can do anything is to start attacking Nicola Sturgeon on her record in government around education, on health, etc. Do you think that's almost overridden by her apparent competence during the pandemic?
2: Yeah, and I, I you know, I think um, you know, the newest leader of course we've got is Douglas is Douglas Ross or sort of leader in waiting or, you know, whatever. Um and actually he's he's made some quite interesting announcements on education and health and so forth in the last couple of months. You know, there's a bit of a flurry of of policy announcements and activity, um, particularly in education, but it, it, it hasn't made a it, it hasn't made a scrap of a difference. I mean, uh, you know, the opposition parties must have to kind of, must pull their hair out, <laughs> you know, um, to sort of understand why they can't really get the, get, get the debate on where um, where they want it to be. But on the other hand, as you say, her ratings, or the first minister's ratings during COVID have been kind of off the scale, really. Um, and so she feels... From that point of view, fairly, fairly untouchable at the
0: minute, I would say. Well, I mean, at the end of the day, people will say that that's been about her ability to be empathetic and communication, mm. and is and is marked by its contrast with Boris Johnson. Mm. Do you think it'll matter at the end of the day as we come out of this and we still see that the number of deaths have been so high? Um, Or do you think that people will forgive the fact that you were dealing with something so new and that nobody really knew what to do?
2: Uh, I I mean, it's a very good question. And I guess the answer to that might depend on where we're at come come May next year. The way I sort of look at it at the moment and today being a sort of classic example, you've got this bit of really good news where it seems like another vaccine has passed a, a fairly high threshold of of Efficacy, um, alongside some really bad news, and that it looks like tomorrow a large swathe of the country is going to go into the severest form of, of of lockdown. And you know, I think people would be kind of forgiven for being quite confused actually at the moment as to where where as to where we are at with with this with, with this pandemic, um, because you know going into going into tier. Four, yeah. level, level five, tier four, is is you know is really severe. It's not um, it's not far off where we were back in the where we were back in the spring. So you know she, as much as as anyone else, has said, look, there needs to be a there needs to be an inquiry. There needs to be a you know, some transparency once we get to once we get to a point where we can do it. Um, I think she's built up for what it's worth, I think she's probably built up enough political capital to 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 withstand that. And it's not as if our neighbours down south are gonna have a particularly brilliant record to, to shout from the rooftops. So I, I suppose my judgment at this point will be that um I don't think it will have a I, I don't think it will have a huge uh it will have a huge impact. I think a lot of that will be priced in.
0: I mean, it's interesting, Mark, when you, you say that you know the comparison with um, the UK government. I suppose because their record won't be any better. But the problem for the, the Scottish Conservatives is that they will always um, be judged against the UK government's performance.
2: Yeah.
0: No matter how much they protest against that.
2: Yeah, they will. And th- again, that must be that must be quite infuriating. Again, for what it's worth, I think Douglas um, Ross is you know, trying very hard um, to uh, to try and sort of uh, unlock that. You know what you what you I think correct, correctly identify as um, in voters' minds that relationship being you know one one party judged by the other and really trying to um, carve out a sort of distinct identity. It's just really, really difficult. Really, really difficult for him to do Um, and I think it sounds quite clunky when he does it I think it and also I think some people will say well but you are in the same party I mean I think sometimes it sounds a bit disloyal if you know what I mean and it's a sort of I don't know I can see what he's trying to do and I think on one level it is the right thing to do but I I just simply at the moment and the current kind of climate and atmosphere we're in I think it's, it's a really it's a really tough ask and and certainly, if you look at any of the polling numbers you know, since he's become since he's become leader, the, the Tories haven't had a haven't had a big bounce in the polls, nor has his sort of personal recognition been um, or personal ratings been anything particularly to write home about. So he's got a hell of a he's got a hell of a task. Um, and of course, the the um, uh, the temptation for him will be just to sort of fall back into being the into being the most kind of ultra unionist party before. Before the election, because he knows that there are, he knows that there are votes there.
0: It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because there's a real paradox that what perhaps you're um, you're describing is that it'd be better for the Scottish Conservatives to be more independent, but you're hardly mm. going to get a, a unionist party arguing for independence with its, within its own party structures, presumably.
2: Yeah, I think that's. I, I mean, I think that's absolutely right. And of course, Murdo tried it when he stood in. Twenty eleven, that was his was it twenty eleven? That was his I'm big I remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um again. Feels like a different lifetime.
0: Yeah.
2: Um that was kind of his big um shtick, wasn't it? But yeah. you know and, and actually I, I guess there's a point at which that that may sound um, you know, perhaps they missed a they missed a trick there. It didn't I lost a bit at the time. Thinking back on it, it didn't really perhaps feel like the right thing to do. But uh, perhaps in hindsight, it it may well have been. And it it, it feels like Douglas is trying to kind of do that um, without sort of doing it formally.
0: Yeah. I mean, I suppose for us, because we've all been so ingrained in it, it's going to take almost to stand back and think how things have changed in those 13 years, really. I mean, the Constitution has become such a focal point of every political debate, and I wonder if it's just too late for any of the other parties to be able to try and compete with the SNP on those grounds?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is. I mean, the, the point is, of course, that you've got a kind of binary debate, which is between yes and no, or Nationalist Unionist, however you want to kind of frame it. And you've basically got the country split down the middle. Now, most of the polling shows a yes, slightly ahead, but, you know, for the sake of argument, let's say it was split down the middle. But you've really got one party <laughs> that stands for one side of the argument and three parties that stand in the other side of the argument. So, you, you, you know, it, it, in that sense, it's always been relatively easy for the SNP. Once the, the whole of our politics is framed around yes and no, um, you know, putting the Greens aside, you've really got one major party who can basically clean up all the all the yes votes um, and of course the more people that switch to supporting yes or supporting independence then the better that is for the sNP whereas you've got labor the Tories and of course to a lesser extent these days the, the Lib Dems, scrapping over the uh, the shrinking uh, unionist or no vote um so it, it just becomes a it becomes a bit of a losing it becomes a bit of a losing battle for them and it becomes uh, you know who is who is the sort of in inverted commas strongest or most kind of uber unionists, um, because that's how you're going to appeal, um, you're going to appeal to that, you know, to the half of the population that still, that still supports the union. And that, of course, explains why up until recently the Tories have done pretty well.
0: It's interesting, though, that that idea of the the kind of uber-unionist, if you like, because you're having to ride two horses at the same time. You're Mm. having to be that uber-unionist, but also be the most Scottish, the party that you think might represent Scotland. And you tweeted something the other day with the football result, Mm. and you said, you know, I've lived in Scotland for 20 years and I've never felt more Scottish. Mm. And it's capturing that essence of what does that mean? You Know who, what is being Scottish, and how does a political party harness that?
2: Yeah, gosh, I mean, I, I yeah, I think it's a really good point. I mean, from a, from a sort of personal point of view, yeah, 20 years, t- uh, July 20, 2000, um, I arrived as a more fresh faced Londoner, still got, still got my accent, of course. Um, my, my children have broad Scottish accents, so it makes for a, <laughs> makes for a fun house. But yeah, and I suppose the football thing it kind of crystallized it a little bit uh for me because my son, especially as a teenager is was you know, absolutely overjoyed you know focused on jumping around the house and um you know and i suppose it, it really was a bit of a it was a bit of a moment to me when i sort of thought when I thought about it i did feel but in that moment i suppose feel more connected than I had done um at any other point i'm a, most people know I'm quite a big football fan as well. So, yeah, that was that was quite a moment. But yeah, you're right. From a from a political party's point of view, I think the Tories are getting better at this, or you know, um at being able to carve out that you know we are for the union, um but we're also you know but we're we're also um, you know the Scottish party. But it's really really difficult. It's really not easy to do at all. And when it, I guess, when it feels like the tide is sort of moving against you a little bit in the kind of constitutional debate. It becomes it becomes harder and harder. Um, it becomes harder and harder to do. Um, well, I think, I think yeah, I, they are trying hard.
0: Yeah, I, I. But then you have you had Boris Johnson tweeting about the football win, saying you know it was well done mm. for Scotland, and mm. people responding, basically saying that they thought that sounded a bit far from him.
2: Mm. Well, uh, you know. I, you know, I think quite a lot of what he, what he does has fine, to be honest, um, as, a, as a kind of personal point of view, but I think whatever he would have said, I think that's kind of the, you know, he's damned if he does, and he's damned if he doesn't, to some extent. If he hadn't said anything, he'd have been ignoring Scotland. I mean, i, you know, I paid sort of t- too much attention um, to that, but I do, I mean, I kept the point. Um, you know, I remember, as you will do, of course, in 2013 and early 2014, when... You know the big the big issue was whether you know David Cameron should engage in the in the independence debates or you know in, engage by by coming up here and actually doing speeches and stuff. And I I, I for what it's worth I actually thought he did okay in the end. Um, he wasn't he didn't have a kind of natural constituency up here. I didn't think, but actually I think he sort of got away with it. And I know because I worked. Um, as you'll know during 2013 and 14 I, I worked um I was doing polling for the for the most no side in the in the UK government and I know that that was a real concern of theirs how he would how he would go down up here um uh, and actually in the end I think he, he he did he did okay um I think we're in a totally different ball game now I think there's a there's a much more sort of visceral dislike of the current Prime Minister than there was for him. And certainly, if we have another referendum, well, when would the earliest be? Sort of towards the back end of, of next year, I suppose, you know, notwithstanding the result of the election, then I think they would have to think really, really carefully about um, the extent to which he, he came up here um, and actively campaigned.
0: I mean, before we even got to that, though, there would have to be the question about whether or not the UK government would grant the order yeah. for a referendum to happen. I mean, do you do you feel, on any of the work that you've done, that should there be a majority SNP or a pro-independence majority in the, the Parliament in the election, then really the UK government would have to cave in?
2: I think they would. Uh, I, I think the the sort of political weight would push down on them eventually. I mean, I think there's a there's an issue going on over timing. Um, I think um, Ian Blackford's intervention over the weekend, um, I believe, although I haven't seen it yet, it got raised in the, um, in the first minister's daily um, briefing. And I think you know, there's obviously an internal audience that the SNP is trying to of at the moment which wants them to say something you know the, the virtual conference is coming up they want them to say something fairly um you know maybe not dramatic but as concrete as they can be so i you know i sort of take 2021 with a slight pinch of salt to that extent not least because i mean by the time you have the election and um depending on where we are with the pandemic you know you know, you're soon into the second half of 2021, so it feels it, 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 it doesn't feel like a huge amount of time to run the campaign, agree the franchise, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but but uh, looking further ahead from that into um, 2022, 2023, then um, oh, that's, I mean, absolutely. And the next UK general election, of course, is scheduled for the back end of 2024. And so the notion that there would be, you know, the opportunity for a, a kind of softer-ish sort of Labour government in place in the UK, which may, um, which may sort of stem the tide of people um, moving from No to Yes, I think is is pretty fanciful. I think we would have a. The next referendum will take place you know, between 2022 and 2024.
0: Yeah, you've said um, it now.
2: Yeah, well, that, it just, that's kind of how it feels to me at the, yeah. at, at the minute. I just don't, I can't see, I mean, they, they being the UK government know that you know, basically the polls, um, we can talk about how uh, accurate polls are, of course, but, you know, there is a trend. There is a discernible trend. It's been going on for long enough um, from different polling companies. It's absolutely clear. What is happening and the huge risk from from the uk government's point of view is that digging your heels in of course increases that trend or enhances that trend um and it becomes an issue of it becomes an issue of democracy rather than an issue of the rights and wrongs of independence and and you know the, the further you go down that path the more likely they are to lose that referendum i would think so i think there would be um, there would be an unbelievable amount of pressure for them uh, to do it. Which doesn't mean they would do it straight away, of course, uh, next year. But I think the smart people down there would realise that you can't just carry on saying no forever and hoping that the issue would would go away. I just don't think that's a tenable, um, tenable do, strategy.
0: Mark, do you think the whole argument about what defines a generation, does that cut through, do you think, with anybody? Or is that just... Kind of political geekery or, you know, just it, it's political campaigns and that's what ha- people say.
2: Well, it was, I mean, it was, I mean, first of all, it was, it was said. So, you know, it, it's not kind of fake news or made up or anything. It was said, but I don't think it has a great deal of cut through with voters. It just doesn't. I mean, if you look at, um, if you look at the most recent polling, um, there's about two thirds, two to one. Majority in favour of another referendum taking place should the SNP win uh, the majority next year. You know, I guess if the third that don't agree with that proposition, then some of them will be on the grounds that, it, you know, it would be breaking a promise that the yes i made in 2014. But but mainly that will be because they don't want, you know, that third of people don't want another referendum. Um, and they, they, they're likely to be... Um, more, more likely to be unionist uh, voters or no voters. So, no, I don't think that proposition has a particular cut through. Politically, of course, it does. It's very, it, for, for, for nationalist politicians, it's very awkward, I think, when it's mentioned. It becomes, uh, it's, it, it's a decent stick to, to, to be hit with or to hit someone with, but it doesn't. I don't think it really makes a great deal of difference to voters, no.
0: Do do you think it really mattered? I mean, you know, I'm just thinking of, you know, people use that terminology all the time, you know, like Mm. buy this pair of socks because it's a a a, a (laughs) once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to buy these socks. I mean, do you think Mm. any politician or any campaign will have learned anything from that, thinking, oh, we mustn't say these kind of things? I mean, surely it's just part of the hyperbole.
2: Yeah, and I think if we've learned much from... um. Events that have happened since since twenty fourteen and so much has, whether it's referendums or elections here or or in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, absolutely, they are um, they're very strongly argued. They are, you know, are we are we, are we getting three hundred and fifty million more a week for the NHS now? I don't know, you know. So of course, referendums come with um, come with uh, promises and come with. Um, slogans and so forth um and i don't think now that voters really would i i I don't think that's a winning strategy it that way if there is another referendum i don't think you're going to get down many votes by saying look this side on this side broke a promise about when the next referendum would be held um so no
0: what do you think would make a difference now in terms of an independence referendum when you think of the thing the arguments that we've all gone through so there were obviously there's things like uh, what does once in a generation mean but also mm. things like the currency um mm. the argument that we would still be in europe if we voted no i mean you are left wondering what either side could throw at each other
2: Oh, absolutely. well i still I, I think there is still quite a lot i mean what I think is really interesting at the moment, of course we're having this debate and we're seeing a slew of of polls and surveys, and we're having it in a in a vacuum I think in some ways um, because we're not because we're not campaigning you know if I were on the unionist side of this argument and I was maybe doing what I did in twenty thirteen fourteen i I think the Best sort of hope will be that, and this is borne out by some of the polling, um, that you know, once we get into a campaign, um, issues of EU membership, the border between England and Scotland, and currency, and broader kind of economic issues, are still ones in which there is maybe not the certainty. Some voters. I mean, at this stage, we're not in a campaign. Obviously, no one's set out there Respect us formally yet, but um, are still those I think where um, the unionist side of the argument has some trump cards uh, to play and some key uh, and some key arguments. I mean, I think unfortunately for them, they fall under the the kind of sort of negative, not quite project fear, but you know, they be quite negative. Or you don't want a border. Or you don't want to go back in the or that you know that's very dangerous and that will be very dangerous and what about the currency? So there'll be there'll be kind of quite negative arguments I think, but they will still be quite powerful and I think some of that is borne out in uh, in the polling. What I think is really difficult um, for unionists and increasingly difficult is to make a positive case um, for the union. Um, and I think that's where they're struggling. I think there's no shortage of, or oh, you know, the border. That's that's the, that's going to be difficult, or currency. That's going to be difficult. But making the positive case, I think that's going to be um, that's going to be much more tricky for them to do. Bearing in mind what the polling is telling us at the moment.
0: I mean, the other thing I think to bear in mind is that we're sitting here, and we're amid a pandemic. It's almost as if we've forgotten about Brexit mm. and the transition mm. period ends mm. at the end of January. So we'll start to see the repercussions of that as well.
2: Yeah, and, you know, again, if I was on the union side of this argument, I would be quite worried about that. I mean, I think sort of fundamentally what the polling has showed, uh, what it's shown rather in, in, the, in the last year, is that um, Brexit has been the key driver to move for, from for moving people between no and yes so that kind of cohort of people who voted no in 2014 but voted to stay in the EU in 2016 you know a sizable proportion of that group now tells the likes of me and pollsters that they would vote yes and in another independence referendum in other words they um, would rather be, you know, if you, if you were choosing between two unions, they would rather be in the European Union than in than in the UK. So what polling also shows us is that a no deal or Australia deal or whatever the euphemism for a no deal is, um, or a hard Brexit, if anything, will cause more people to make that change in their view of the... Um, of the Scottish constitutional question, so a no-deal Brexit is likely to further widen the gap between yes and no uh, in the polling, and you know the last time I looked, that's pretty much where we're heading. Although I suspect there will be there will be some deal of some description done, but it will be it will be fairly thin, um, and so we are you know if anything we are. Um, you know, I would expect the polls on that basis to show an even wider gap come sort of January, February next year than they do at the moment. And, you know, if it gets over 60, you know, 55, 60% then you know, the union side really does have a problem. And I I think for what it's worth fundamentally, um, the government, the UK government has a really difficult problem in one hand balancing um, its sort of, I don't want to be too sweeping in this, but it's kind of southern constituency of, of folk who are looking for, a, uh, in inverted commas, proper Brexit, quite a hard Brexit. And that's an important constituency for um, for the UK government with um, voters in Scotland who are likely to be increasingly put off the UK government and the union by exactly that move. And for the UK government, that's a really, really difficult Spot to be in. How do you keep? How do you keep a, a Scottish a no voter, but who wants to stay in the EU, on side at the same time um, as someone in the south of England? To be completely stereotypical, who is looking for a hard Brexit, really difficult, really, really difficult to do. And I think fundamentally, that's the that's the issue that you have. How do you get a hard Brexit while uh, keeping support for the union? In Scotland, above 50%, really not easy to do.
0: And do you think it would make any difference having a different prime minister?
2: Well, I think it, I mean, I think it might. I mean, our sort of go-to evidence for that would be, you know, um, what's been done in a lot of the polling, which is, you know, comparing how voters here um, perceive the Prime Minister to have handled the, the pandemic compared to the First Minister and as we we sort of touched on earlier on it's it's night and day there is something I think that's you know let's be honest no UK Tory leader is whether in whether in government or in as leader of the opposition is particularly popular um, in Scotland um, but the current incumbent is particularly unpopular and mm. um, uh, that's to do with Brexit, that's to do with the pandemic, that's to do with him, that's to do, you know, so there are, you know, there, you know his personality and so forth. So he has very political capital up here. And, of course, um, not only do voters think that, but, you know, his party up here thinks that as well. Because, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, part, the, leader, the new leader is at is, pains is to try and distance himself. And I actually, as we were talking about earlier, can completely see why. Um, it's a tough strategy, but it's one that makes sense. I get, I do get the strategy, but I just, you know, um, you know if we get into another independence referendum, it would be odd for the Prime Minister not to play, play a role at all. Um, and, you know, he has some campaigning, um, uh, quite a lot of campaigning experience, whether in London or with the Brexit referendum and so forth. And, you know, he's a pretty decent campaigner, has to be said. The extent to which that washes is up here, I just think stand. I, I, I don't know, I, I, I can't see it.
0: I mean, we are led to believe that, of course, the next leader could either be Rishi Sunak or Michael Gove. Do you think having mm. a Scot in the place might make a difference? Well, I think, um,
2: I, I think Michael Gove is, um, I mean, I, I always sort of go to numbers at this point and I, d- I don't recall many numbers on him. I mean, I, I think he has more skin in the game, obviously, being from Scotland. Um, I think he's probably a bit more nuanced in how he would make the arguments. He's clearly been at the forefront of um, trying to beef up the UK government's presence in Scotland, you know, the new building in Edinburgh and this, that and the other that they're, um, that they're doing in order to to show, the, or at least visually show, that the, the UK government's presence uh, north of the border so yeah, I think it would. He would be a step up. I mean, he would still face some pretty serious, um, a pretty serious deficit, I think, in voters' minds. But I think, you know, if you're if you were choosing a prime minister from the group who may be vying to replace the current one from the same party and from the same cabinet or whatever, then he would probably be your be your best choice at the minute. I would say.
0: And I suppose finally, Mark, I mean, you know, we've come through, the, well, we still feel like we're in the US elections, but mm. pollsters got that very wrong. And mm. I mean, you know, I've had these discussions before about polling and, and um, predictions, but this far out, give me a prediction for the election in May.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> The polling, in, the polling in the US probably isn't as bad as, he says, not exactly damned you know, with faint praise. It, it, it's not brilliant, but I don't think it is as bad as was first suspected. I, I was a little bit um, shrugging my shoulders in a bit of a huff with the sort of hot takes on midnight of the, of the election that, you know, it's a complete polling disaster. So I think we always knew in some areas of the US that they would count the votes sort of sequentially, and that that would have a, a sort of material impact on who looked to see ahead at one point and who would end up at the end. And I think as far as a national vote is concerned, I mean, they are still counting, of course. And um, Biden now has, I think, about four and a half point lead nationally. Um, I think it will end up at about five points. But um, so it will be, you know, it will still be short of what um, the kind of polling average, which was about eight points. So it won't be fantastic, but it won't be the absolute disaster, I don't think, that people people have characterised it as, or some people have characterised it as, nonetheless. Um, Coming to next May, I mean, it won't surprise anyone to hear that I think the SNP will will win the election and win it big. Um, We touched on a few things, I think, that may temper the extent of that victory. I mean, COVID being um, the most obvious, and what happens with the pandemic between now and by the time we go to the polls, you know, the SNP has some internal issues going on at the minute, which I don't think have particularly seeped into the public consciousness yet, but may do between now and then. And there are events around some of those issues that may have that, that may have an impact. But given that we're not crystal ball gazers, but, uh, but where we are now, I see nothing other than a, a fairly handsome. Um, SNP victory and certainly the size of the poll lead at the moment would suggest that they will get a majority I mean they got a majority in 2011 with about 47 percent of the constituency vote there are polls at the moment with them on about 58 percent mid 50s to high 50s and so um, while that may be, you may have to temper that a little bit I mean anything approaching that would suggest to me that they'd be on course to to get an overall uh, to get an overall majority um, next May, and then I guess we go headlong, or at some point, into another into another referendum after that.
0: And do you think Labour could overtake um, the Tories as being the, the opposition party?
2: Yeah, the gap has narrowed in um, in recent polls. I still think the Tories have a bit of an, in- an inherent advantage um, in uh, in leadership and in um, the fact that they'll I suspect you know go fairly heavy on the union. And and you know, let's not forget still we've got about forty five percent in the current polls who still um, are still pro union. Um so there is still a big constituency of pro union um, voters to go for and I think the the Tories will still position themselves um, as you know the go to you know, anti-second referendum. Um, you know, we're the only party that you can trust with the with the future of the union, um, and so on that basis, I think. Uh, you know, if I was to put money on it now, I still think the Tories would would come second. Yeah.
0: And just, uh, I guess, just as a final word, really, we'll also have the football next June. Mm-hmm. What do you think a win by Scotland would mean for an <laughs> <Indians> referendum? <laughs>
2: I remember um, I was asked this last week by a newspaper. You know, will um, uh, comment on whether um, whether I think uh, qualifying for the Euros would um, would boost support for independence. And, and the sort of short answer to that was no. Um, I, I think winning it might be a might be a slightly different kettle of fish. Um, but no, I. Don't really think um, the football will play a, um, a huge part, just like the Commonwealth Games didn't in 2014, or the anniversary of Bannockburn and those other events that we were told would um, that may um, may may make a difference to the polling. It, 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 there's, there's very scant evidence to suggest that they, they did, um, and so no, I don't think I don't think the football. Um, Unfortunately, if you're hoping that the football would um, um would pay a fact, my reading is I don't think it. I don't think it will.
0: See, so that's when you you sound ever so more Scottish. <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> Did I? <laughs> i hope you, Yeah. Well, there yeah, you
0: go. You <laughs>
2: <laughs> but we'll see. I mean, if they won it, oh my God. Um, let's hope we're. Let's hope we can go out at that point because if they win it, there will be uh, a party that goes on for quite some time, I would think. Hopefully, we'll um, all have the vaccine by then. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, my arm is ready and waiting for the, for the injection.
0: <laughs> Give us the drug.
2: And more importantly, let's hope we can have the garden party at the beginning of next year as well.
0: Definitely. We definitely need a party, don't we?
2: Yeah, we absolutely
1: do. Okay, so it's time for the final part of the show. That is what is meant to be the rant of the week. Um, It isn't always totally a rant from Mandy now. It's meant to be a chance for her to get something off her chest. Mandy, is there anything that's been dominating your thoughts this week?
0: Yeah, it's interesting on the rant thing. I'm thinking of trying to chart when I rant and when I'm a bit more thoughtful. It might be hormonal, but... Right, okay. (laughs) I might try it out over the next few weeks. We'll see what happens. But I think this one is a bit more considered, kind of. Um, I think you and I have been talking about the soap opera that's basically number 10, which Mm. um, splashed all over the papers at the weekend with the exit of both Lee Kane, a man I know as a chicken, and Dominic Cummings, um, who've both exited number 10. And I suppose it was just all the excruciating detail of the shenanigans that have gone on between um Carrie Simmons' camp, Carrie Simmons being the fiance of Boris Johnson and um Dominic Cummings' camp, although I'm not sure who's in Dominic Cummings camp other than him and Lee Kane and just some, Lee Kane, yeah. Some the man in a chicken costume he might have employed. Um but I think if you were Cummings and you had one job to do as you walked out the door, it was to embed that moniker Princess Nut Nuts on the nation's psyche. Uh,
1: it's, I mean, I, I don't know why it fundamentally irritates me. I think obviously it's, it's pretty offensive, but it's just such a crap nickname as well. Nut nuts,
0: princess nut nuts. It's what we call you. <laughs>
1: well, the <laughs> princess nut nuts.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I was quite surprised. <laughs>
1: that was quite disappointing, to be honest.
0: <laughs> but also yeah. that whole the whole chat of um, the the Dominic Cummings latest uh, thing was pretending to take the pin out of a hand grenade and throwing it over his shoulder as he exited a door.
1: It's just, I mean, first of all, that isn't how do you even mime that? You know, you'd have to, the only way people would understand that is if he's actually announced at the start of the meeting, hey, by the way, on the way out, I'm going to do this thing. And you have to try and understand what it means.
0: It's so childish, though. I mean, these are the people that were basically running our country. Maybe that explains quite a lot.
1: Well I mean, a lot of obviously a lot of the kind of strategic blunders are put down to Dominic Cummings, so it'll be interesting to see whether Boris Johnson's game picks up and given the fact that yesterday, as we talked about, he said devolution was a disaster, you have to wonder if it was totally Dominic Cummings' fault.
0: No. Well, and also just on the chicken reference to Lee Kane. I mean, that's the, pr- the problem. We don't we don't forget things. And Lee Kane, as a, a young journalist with the Mirror, had to dress up as a chicken and um, chase politicians around because it's just one of those things that newspaper editors might get you to do. I have to say, I mm. never did it. I you really, were never a chicken? I was never a chicken. No, I wouldn't have been very good at it I think. Maybe what a was, what
1: was, did you ever have to do anything really weird when you uh, were a trainee oh, or anything?
0: No I was once asked um, to, to go to an audition to be a pole dancer <laughs> um, and I think needless to say I refused to do that.
1: Yeah
0: no that's I've not a great one. I've never asked you to do anything strange have I?
1: No, I once I did shifts once for a unnamed newspaper, um, where I was told to go around uh well, I might as well just say it's Edinburgh. I went round Edinburgh having to check whether various official big clocks were on time or not. Um so I had to go and check every major clock in Edinburgh. The problem was I actually confused at one point. I thought it was a clock, it turned out to be a big compass.
0: How long um, were you standing there waiting for the hands to move around? Well,
1: well I, I just, I went there. I said, oh, it's not quarter to three or whatever, you know. So this is outrageous. And then so uh, went I went, went and asked the council about it. They went back and said, well, no, it isn't. It's a, it was pointing west or whatever.
0: <laughs> it does <laughs> astonish me that people are willing to, I suppose when you're a young trainee or whatever, you just, think you should do as you're told, but it does amaze me. I mean, I, Last week, Matt Ford was talking about how he had to dress up as a chicken when he worked for the Labour Party. I love that story of chasing Charles Kennedy around and Charles Kennedy turned to Matt as he clucked in his face and said, I don't know if this is uh, the most suitable time, but I think I ate your mother in KFC last night. I just thought it was... <laughs> it says so much about them both.
1: <laughs> well, didn't Jim Murphy get chased around by a guy dressed as a chicken as well after the egg thing
0: yeah that, well i mean i think just every newspaper editor probably has a chicken outfit in the room which perhaps says a great deal about them too
1: i think it was uh, ken clark came forward saying he actually thought he was a very good chicken because um, he's probably he's been in of politics for a long time so he's probably seen quite a d- few different performances and yeah. he actually said lee kane was one of the better ones he'd seen
0: Well, I think that's quite a good recommendation, isn't it? For whatever his next job will be. Mm -hmm. Maybe politicians should do something about that. Have us all dressed up as chickens at some point. It's a (laughs) leveller. So they say a week is a long time in politics and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's politically speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts.